Chapter 20 of Woodhouse in the Strand Short Story Collection This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Woodhouse in the Strand Short Story Collection by Pelham Granville Woodhouse Chapter 20 The Metropolitan Touch Nobody's more alive than I am to the fact that young Bingo Little is in many respects a sound old egg, but I must say there are things about him that could be improved. The man's too expansive altogether. When it comes to letting the world in on the secrets of his heart, he has about as much shrinking reticence as a steam calliope. Well, for instance, here's the telegram I got from him one evening in November. I say, Bertie, old man, I'm in love at last. She's the most wonderful girl, Bertie, old man. This is the real thing at last, Bertie. Come here at once and bring Jeeves. Oh, I say, you know that tobacco shop in Bond Street on the left side as you go up? Will you get me a hundred of their special cigarettes and send them to me here? I've run out. I know when you see her, you'll think she is the most wonderful girl. And mind you bring Jeeves. Uh, don't forget the cigarettes. Bingo. It had been handed in at Twing Post Office. In other words, he'd submitted that frightful rot to the goggling eye of a village postmistress, who's probably the mainspring of local gossip, and would have the place ringing with the news before nightfall. He couldn't have given himself away more completely if he'd hired the town crier. When I was a kid, I used to read stories about knights and vikings and that species of chappy who would get up without blush in the middle of a crowded banquet and loose off a song about how perfectly priceless they thought their best girl. I've often felt that those days would have suited young Bingo down to the ground. Jeeves had brought the thing in with the evening drink, and I slung it over to him. It was about due, of course, I said. Young Bingo hasn't been in love for at least a couple of months. I wonder who it is this time. Miss Mary Burgess, sir, said Jeeves. The niece of the Reverend Mr. Heppenstall. She's staying at Twing Vicarage. Great Scott! I knew that Jeeves knew practically everything in the world, but this sounded like second sight. How do you know that? When we were visiting Twing Hall in the summer, sir, I formed a somewhat close friendship with Mr. Heppenstall's butler. He is good enough to keep me abreast of the local news from time to time. From this account, sir, the young lady appears to be a very estimable young lady, of a somewhat serious nature, I understand. Mr. Little is very épris, sir. Brookfield, my correspondent, writes that last week he observed him in the moonlight at an advanced hour gazing up at his window. Whose window? Brookfield's? Yes, sir presumably under the impression that it was the young lady's. But what the deuce is he doing at Twing at all? Mr. Little was compelled to resume his old position as tutor to Lord Wickhammersley's son at Twing Hall, sir, owing to having been unsuccessful in some speculations at Hurst Park at the end of October. Good Lord Jeeves, is there anything you don't know? I couldn't say, sir. I picked up the telegram. I suppose he wants us to go down and help him out a bit. That would appear to be his motive in dispatching the message, sir. Well, what shall we do? Go? I would advocate it, sir. If I may say so, I think that Mr. Little should be encouraged in this particular matter. You think he's picked a winner this time? I hear nothing but excellent reports of the young lady, sir. 
I think it is beyond question that she would be an admirable influence for Mr. Little, should the affair come to a happy conclusion. Such a union would also, I fancy, go far to restore Mr. Little to the good graces of his uncle, the young lady being well-connected and possessing private means. In short, sir, I think that if there's anything that we can do, we should do it. Well, with you behind him, I said, I don't see how he can fail to click. Not very good, sir, said Jeeves. The tribute is much appreciated. Bingo met us at Twing Station next day, and insisted on my sending Jeeves on in the car with the bags, while he and I walked. He started in about the female the moment we'd begun to hoof it. She's very wonderful, Bertie. She's not one of those flippant, shallow-minded modern girls. She's sweetly grave and beautifully earnest. She reminds me of—what's uh, the name I want? Mary Lloyd? St. Cecilia, said young Bingo, eyeing me with a good deal of loathing. She reminds me of St. Cecilia. She makes me yearn to be a better, nobler, deeper, broader man. What beats me, I said, following up a train of thought, is what principle you picked them on. The girls you fall in love with, I mean. I mean to say, what's your system? As far as I can see, no two of them are alike. First it was Mabel the waitress, then Honoria Glossop, then that fearful blister Charlotte Corday Rowbottom. I own that Bingo had the decency to shudder, thinking of Charlotte always made me shudder too. You don't seriously mean, Bertie, that you're intending to compare the feeling I have for Mary Burgess, the holy devotion, the spiritual— Oh, all right, let it go, I said. I say, old lad, aren't we going rather a long way round? Considering that we were supposed to be headed for Twing Hall, it seemed to me that we were making a longage job of it. The hall is about two miles from the station by the main road, and we'd cut off down a lane, gone across country for a bit, climbed a stile or two, and were now working our way across a field that ended in another lane. "'She sometimes takes her little brother for a walk round this way,' explained Bingo. "'I thought we would meet her and, and, and bow, and you could see her, you know, and then we'd walk on.' "'Of course,' I said. "'That's enough excitement for anyone, and undoubtedly a corking reward for tramping three miles out of one's way of a ploughed fields with tight boots. But don't we do anything else?' Don't we tack on to the girl and buzz along with her? Good Lord, said Bingo, honestly amazed. You don't suppose I've got nerve enough for that, do you? I, I just look at her from afar and all that sort of thing. Quick, here she comes. Oh, no, I'm wrong. It was like that song of Harry Lauder's where he's waiting for the girl and says, This is her. No, it's a rabbit. Young Bingo made me stand there in the teeth of a nor'east half gale for ten minutes, keeping me on my toes with a series of false alarms, and I was just thinking of suggesting that we should lay off and give the rest of the proceedings a miss, when round the corner there came a fox-terrier, and Bingo quivered like an aspen. Then there hove in sight a small boy, and he shook like a jelly. Finally, like a star whose entrance has been worked up by the personnel of the ensemble, a girl appeared, and his emotion was painful to witness. His face got so red that, what with his white collar and the fact that the wind had turned his nose blue, he looked more like a French flag than anything else. He sagged from the waist upwards, as if he'd been filleted. He was just raising his fingers limply to his cap, when he suddenly saw that the girl wasn't alone. A chappy in clerical costume was also among those present, and the sight of him didn't seem to do Bingo a bit of good. His face got redder, and his nose bluer, 
and it wasn't till they'd nearly passed that he managed to get hold of his cap. The girl bowed. The curate said, Ah, little, rough weather. The dog barked, and then they toddled on, and the entertainment was over. The curate was a new factor in the situation to me. I reported his movements to Jeeves when I got to the hall. Of course, Jeeves knew all about it already. That is the Reverend Mr. Wingham, Mr. Heppenstall's new curate, sir. I gather from Brookfield that he is Mr. Little's rival, and that at the moment the young lady appears to favour him. Mr. Wingham has the advantage of being on the premises. He and the young lady played duets after dinner, which acts as a bond. Mr. Little, on these occasions, I understand, prowls about in the road, chafing visibly. That seems to be all the poor fish is able to do, dash it. He could chafe all right, but there he stops. He's lost his pep. He's got no dash. Why, when we met her just now, he hadn't even the common manly courage to say, Good evening. I gather that Mr. Little's affection is not unmingled with awe, sir. Well, how are we to help a man when he's such a rabbit as that? Have you anything to suggest? I shall be seeing him after dinner, and he's sure to ask first thing what you advise. In my opinion, sir, the most judicious course for Mr. Little to pursue would be to concentrate on the young gentleman. The small brother? How do you mean? Make a friend of him, sir. Take him for walks, and so forth. It doesn't sound one of your red-hottest ideas. I must say, I expected something fruitier than that. It would be a beginning, sir, and might lead to better things. Well, I'll tell him. I like the look of her, Jeeves. A thoroughly estimable young lady, sir. I slipped Bingo the tip from the stable that night, and was glad to observe that it seemed to cheer him up. Jeeves is always right, he said. I ought to have thought of it myself. I'll start in tomorrow. It was amazing how the chappie bucked up. Long before I left for town it had become a mere commonplace for him to speak to the girl. I mean, he didn't simply look stuffed when they met. The brother was forming a bond that was a dashed sight stronger than the curate's duets. She and Bingo used to take him for walks together. I asked Bingo what they talked about on these occasions, and he said, Wilfred's future. The girl hoped that Wilfred would one day become a curate. But Bingo said no, there was something about curates he didn't quite like. The day we left, Bingo came to see us off with Wilfred frisking about it like an old college chum. The last I saw of them, Bingo was standing him chocolates out of the slot machine. A scene of peace and cheery goodwill. Dashed promising, I thought. Which made it all the more of a jar about a fortnight later when his telegram arrived as follows. Betty, old man, I say, Bertie, could you possibly come down here at once? Everything gone wrong. Hang it all. Dash it, Bertie, you simply must come. I am in a state of absolute despair and heartbroken. Would you mind sending another hundred of those cigarettes? And bring Jeeves when you come, Bertie. You simply must come, Bertie. I rely on you. Don't forget to bring Jeeves. Bingo. For a chap who's perpetually hard up, I must say that young Bingo is the most wasteful telegraphist I ever struck. He's got no notion of condensing. The silly ass simply pours out his wounded soul at twopence a word, or whatever it is, without a thought. How about it, Jeeves? I said. Getting a bit fed. I can't go chucking all my engagements every second week in order to biff down to Twing and rally round young Bingo. Send him a wire telling him to end it all in the village pond. 
Uh, if you could spare me for the night, sir, I should be glad to run down and investigate. Oh, dash it! Well, I suppose there's nothing else to be done. After all, you're the fellow he wants. All right, carry on. Jeeves got back late the next day. Well, I said. Jeeves appeared perturbed. He allowed his left eyebrow to flicker upwards in a concerned sort of manner. I have done what I could, sir, he said. But I fear Mr. Little's chances do not appear bright. Since our last visit, sir, there has been a decidedly sinister and disquieting development. Oh, what's that? You may remember Mr. Steggles, sir, the young gentleman who was studying for an examination with Mr. Heppenstall at the vicarage. Of course I remembered Steggles. You'll place him if you throw your mind back. Recollect the rat-faced chappie of sporting tastes who made the book on the sermon handicap and then made another on the choir-boy sports. That's the fellow. A blighter of infinite guile and up to every shady scheme on the list. Though, thanks to Jeeves, we'd let him in pretty badly on the girl's egg and spoon race and collected a parcel off him in spite of his villainies. What's Steggles got to do with it? I asked. I gather from Brookfield, sir, who chanced to overhear a conversation, that Mr. Steggles is interesting himself in the affair. Good Lord! What, making a book on it? I understand that he is accepting wages from those in his immediate circle, sir, against Mr. Little, whose chances he does not seem to fancy. I don't like that, Jeeves. No, sir. It is sinister. From what I know of Steggles, there will be dirty work. It has already occurred, sir. Already? Yes, sir. It seems that in pursuance of the policy which he had been good enough to allow me to suggest to him, Mr. Little escorted Master Burgess to the church bazaar, and there met Mr. Steggles, who was in the company of young Master Heppenstall, the Reverend Mr. Heppenstall's second son, who is home from Rugby just now, having recently recovered from an attack of mumps. The encounter took place in the refreshment room, where Mr. Steggles was at that moment entertaining Master Heppenstall. To cut a long story short, sir, the two gentlemen became extremely interested in the hearty matter in which the lads were fortifying themselves, and Mr. Steggles offered to back his nominee in a wait-for-age eating contest against Master Burgess for a pound a side. Mr. Little admitted to me that he was conscious of a certain hesitation as to what the upshot might be, should Miss Burgess get to hear of the matter, but his sporting blood was too much for him, and he agreed to the contest. This was duly carried out, both lads exhibiting the utmost willingness and enthusiasm, and eventually Master Burgess justified Mr. Little's confidence by winning, but only after a bitter struggle. Next day both contestants were in considerable pain. Inquiries were made, and confessions extorted, and Mr. Little, I learned from Brookfield, who happened to be near the door of the drawing-room at the moment, had an extremely unpleasant interview with the young lady, which ended in her desiring him never to speak to her again. There's no getting away from the fact that if ever a man required watching its steggles, Machiavelli could have taken his correspondence course. "'It was a put-up job, Jeeves,' I said. "'I mean, Steggles worked the whole thing on purpose. "'It's his old nobbling game.' "'There would seem to be no doubt about that, sir. "'Well, he seems to have dished poor old Bingo all right.' "'That is the prevalent opinion, sir. 
Brookfield tells me that down in the village at the Cow and Horses, seven to one is being freely offered Mr. Wingham and finding no takers. Good Lord, are they betting about it down in the village too? Yes, sir, and in adjoining hamlets also. The affair has caused widespread interest. I'm told that there is a certain sporting reaction in even so distant a spot as Lower Bingley. Well, I don't see what there is to do. If Bingo's such a chump, one is fighting a losing battle, I hear, sir. But I did venture to indicate to Mr. Little a course of action which might prove of advantage. I recommended him to busy himself with good works. Good works? About the village, sir. Reading to the bedridden, chatting with the sick, that sort of thing, sir. We can but trust that good results will ensue. Yes, I suppose so, I said, doubtfully. But by gosh, if I was a sick man, I'd hate to have a loony like young Bingo coming and gibbering at my bedside. But there is that aspect of the matter, sir, said Jeeves. I didn't hear a word from Bingo for a couple of weeks, and I took it, after a while, that he'd found the going too hard and had chucked in the towel. And then, one night not long before Christmas, I came back to the flat pretty latish, having been out dancing at the embassy. I was fairly tired, having swung a practically non-stop shoe from shortly after dinner till 2am, and bed seemed to be indicated. Judge of my chagrin, and all that sort of thing, therefore, when, tottering to my room and switching on the light, I observed the foul features of young Bingo all over the pillow. The blighter had appeared from nowhere, and was in my bed, sleeping like an infant, with a sort of happy, dreamy smile on his map. A bit thick, I mean to say. We Worcesters are all for the good old medieval hospital that, but when it comes to finding chappies collaring your bed, the thing becomes a trifle too mouldy. I hove a shoe, and Bingo sat up, gurgling. Smatter, uh, smatter, said young Bingo. What the deuce are you doing in my bed? I said. Oh, hello, Bertie. So there you are. Yes, here I am. What are you doing in my bed? I came up to town for the night on business. Yes, but what are you doing in my bed? Dash it all, Bertie, said young Bingo querulously. Don't keep harping on your beastly bed. There's another made up in the spare room. I saw Jeeves make it with my own eyes. I believe he meant it for me, but I knew what a perfect host you were, so I just turned in. Here. I say, Bertie, old man, said Bingo, apparently fed up with the discussion about sleeping quarters. I see daylight. Well, it's getting on for three in the morning. I was speaking figuratively, you ass. I meant that hope has begun to dawn. About Mary Burgess, you know. Sit down, I'll tell you all about it. I won't. I'm going to sleep. To begin with, said young Bingo, settling himself comfortably against the pillows and helping himself to a cigarette from my special private box, I must once again pay a marked tribute to good old Jeeves, modern Solomon. I was badly up against it when I came to him for advice, but he rolled up with a tip which has put me, I use the term advisedly and in a conservative spirit, on velvet. He may have told you that he recommended me to win back the lost ground by busying myself with good works. Bertie, old man, said young Bingo earnestly, for the last two weeks I've been comforting the sick to such an extent that if I had a brother and you brought him to me on a sick bed at this moment, by Jove, old man, I'd heave a brick at him. However, though it took it out of me, like the deuce, the scheme worked splendidly. She softened visibly before I'd been at it a week, started to bow again when we met in the street and so forth. About a couple of days ago she distinctly smiled, in a sort of faint, saint-like kind of way, you know, 
when I ran into her outside the vicarage, and yesterday, I say, you remember that curate chap, Wingham, fellow with a long nose and a sort of goofy expression? Of course I remember him. Your rival. Rival? Sir Bingo raised his eyebrows. Oh, well, I suppose you could have called him that at one time, though it sounds a little far-fetched. Does it? I said, stung by the sickening complacency of the chump's manner. Well, let me tell you that the last I heard was that at the cow and horses in Twing Village, and all over the place as far as Lower Bingley, they were offering seven to one on the curate, and finding no takers. Bingo started violently, and sprayed cigarette ash all over my bed. Betting? he gargled. Betting? You don't mean that they're betting on this holy, sacred— Oh, I say, dash it all! Haven't people any sense of decency and reverence? Is nothing safe from their beastly, sordid graspingness? I wonder, said young Bingo thoughtfully, if there's a chance by getting any of that seven-to-one money. Seven-to-one? What a price! Who's offering it, do you know? Oh, well, I suppose it wouldn't do, no. I suppose it wouldn't be quite the thing. You seem dashed confident, I said. I'd always thought that Wingham— Oh, I'm not worried about him, said Bingo. I was just going to tell you, Wingham's got the mumps and won't be out and about for weeks. And jolly as that is in itself, it's not all. You see, he was producing the village school Christmas entertainment. And now I've taken over the job. I went to see old Heppenstall last night and clinched the contract. Well, you see what that means. It means that I shall be absolutely the centre of village life, and thought for three solid weeks, with a terrific triumph to wind up with. Everybody's looking up to me and fawning on me, don't you see, and all that. It's bound to have a powerful effect on Mary's mind. It will show her that I am capable of serious effort, that there is a solid foundation of worth in me, that, mere butterfly as she may once have thought me, I am in reality, oh, all right, let it go. It's a big thing, you know, this Christmas entertainment. Old Heppenstall very much wrapped up in it, nibs from all over the countryside rolling up. The squire present with family. A big chance for me, Bertie, my boy, and I mean to make the most of it. Of course, I'm handicapped a bit by not having been on the thing from the start. Will you credit it that uninspired donut of a curate wanted to give the public some rotten little fairy play out of a book for children published about fifty years ago without one good laugh or the semblance of a gag in it? Too late to alter the thing entirely, but at least I can jazz it up. I'm going to write them in something zippy to brighten the thing up a bit. You can't write. Well, when I say write, I mean pinch. That's why I popped into town. I've been to see that review, Cuddle Up, at the Palladium, tonight. Full of good stuff, of course. It's rather hard to get anything in the nature of a big spectacular effect in the Twing Village Hall, with no scenery to speak of, and a chorus of practically imbecile kids of ages ranging from nine to fourteen. But I think I see my way. Have you seen Cuddle Up? Yes, twice. Well, there's some good stuff in the first act, and I can practically lift all the numbers, then there's that show at the palace. I can see the matinee of that tomorrow before I leave. There's sure to be some decent bits in that. Don't you worry about my not being able to write a bit. Leave it, my dear old chap, said young Bingo, snuggling down cosily. You mustn't keep me up talking all night. It's all right for you fellows who've nothing to do, but I'm a busy man. Good night, old thing. Close the door quietly after you and switch out the light. Breakfast about uh, ten tomorrow, I suppose. What? Righto. Good night. For the next three weeks, I didn't see Bingo. He became a sort of voice heard off, developing a habit of ringing me up on long distance and consulting me on various points arising at the rehearsal, until the day when he got me out of bed at eight in the morning to ask whether I thought Merry Christmas was a good title. I told him then that this nuisance must now cease, but after that 
He cheesed it, and practically passed out of my life, till one afternoon when I got back to the flat to dress for dinner, and found Jeeves inspecting a whacking big poster sort of thing which he'd draped over the back of an armchair. "'Good Lord, Jeeves,' I said. I was feeling rather weak that day, and the thing shook me. "'What on earth's that?' "'Mr. Little sent it to me, sir, and desired me to bring it to your notice.' "'Well, you've certainly done it.' I took another look at the object. There was no doubt about it. It caught the eye. It was about seven feet long, and most of the lettering in about as bright a red ink as I ever struck. "'What do you make of it, Jeeves?' I said. "'I confess I am a little doubtful, sir. I think Mr. Little would have done better to follow my advice, and confine himself to good works about the village. You think the thing would be a frost?' I could not hazard a conjecture, sir, but my experience has been that, whilst it pleases the London public, is not always so acceptable to the rural mind. The metropolitan touch sometimes proves a trifle too exotic for the provinces. I suppose I ought to go down and see the dashed thing. I think Mr. Little would be wounded were you not present, sir. The village hall at Twing is a smallish building smelling of apples. It was full when I turned up on the evening of the 23rd, for I had purposely timed myself to arrive not long before the kick-off. I had had experience of one or two of these binges, and didn't want to run any risk of coming early, and finding myself shoved into a seat in one of the front rows where I wouldn't be able to execute a quiet sneak into the open air halfway through the proceedings, if the occasion seemed to demand it. I secured a nice strategic position near the door at the back of the hall. From where I stood, I had a good view of the audience. As always on these occasions, the first few rows were occupied by the nibs, consisting of the squire, a fairly mauve old sportsman with white whiskers, his family, a platoon of local parsons, and perhaps a couple of dozen prominent pew-holders. Then came a dense squash of what you might call the lower middle classes, and at the back, where I was, we came down with the jerk in the social scale this end of the hall being given up almost entirely to a collection of, frankly, tough eggs, who had rolled up, not so much for any love of the drama, as because there was a free tea after the show. Take it for all in all, a representative gathering of twing life and thought. The nibs were whispering in a pleased manner to each other, the lower middle classes were sitting up very straight as if they'd been bleached, and the tough eggs whiled away the time by cracking nuts and exchanging low, rustic wheezes. The girl, Mary Burgess, was at the piano, playing a waltz. Beside her stood the curate, Wingham, apparently recovered. The temperature, I should think, was about a hundred and twenty-seven. Somebody jabbed me heartily in the lower ribs, and I perceived the man, Steggles. "'Hello,' he said. "'I didn't know you were coming down.' I didn't like the chap, but we Worcesters can wear the mask. I beamed a bit. Oh, yes, I said. Bingo wanted me to roll up and see his show. I hear he's giving us something pretty ambitious, said the man Steggles. The effects and all that sort of thing. I believe so. Of course, means a lot to him, doesn't it? He's told you about the girl, of course. Yes, and I hear you're laying several to one against him, I said, eyeing the blighter a trifle austerely. He didn't even quiver. Oh, just a little flutter to relieve the more monotony of country life, he said. You got the facts a bit wrong. 
It's down in the village that they're laying seven to one. You can do better than that if you feel speculative mood. How about a ten or a hundred to eight? Good Lord, are you giving that? Yes. Somehow, said Steggles, meditatively, I was sort of feeling a kind of premonition that something's going to go wrong tonight. You know what little is, bungler if ever there was one. Something tells me this show is going to be a frost. And if it is, of course, I should have prejudiced the girl against him, pretty Bradley. Standing always was rather shaky. They're going to try and smash up the show, I said sternly. Me? said Steggles. Why? What could I do? Half a minute. I ought to speak to a man. He buzzed off, leaving me distinctly disturbed. I could see from the fellow's eye that he was meditating some cursory rough stuff, and I thought Bingo ought to be warned. But there wasn't time, and I couldn't get at him. It was immediately after Steggles had left the curtain went up. Except as a prompter, Bingo wasn't much in evidence in the early part of the performance. The thing at the outset was merely one of those weird dramas which you dig out of books published around Christmas time and entitled Twelve Little Plays for the Tots, or something like that. The kids drooled on in the usual manner, the booming voice of Bingo ringing out from time to time behind the scenes when the flatheads forgot their lines, and the audience was settling down into the sort of torpor usual on these occasions when the first of Bingo's interpolated bits occurred. It was the number which, what's-her-name, sings in that review at the palace. You'd recognise the tune if I hummed it, but I can never get hold of the dash thing. It always got three encores at the palace, and it went well now, even with a squeaky-voiced child jumping on and off the quay like a chamois of the Alps leaping from crag to crag. Even the tough eggs liked it. At the end of the second refrain, the entire house was shouting for an encore, and the kid with the voice like a slate pencil took a deep, breath and started to let it go once more. At this point, all the lights went out. I don't know when I've had anything so sudden and devastating happen to me before. They didn't flicker, they just went out. The hall was in complete darkness. Well, of course, that sort of broke the spell, as you might put it. People started to shout directions, and the tough eggs stamped their feet and settled down to a pleasant time. And, of course, young Bingo had to make an ass of himself. His voice suddenly shot at us out of the darkness. Ladies and gentlemen, something has gone wrong with the lights. The tough eggs were tickled by this bit of information straight from the stable. They took it up as a sort of battle cry. Then, after about five minutes, the lights went up again and the show was resumed. It took ten minutes after that to get the audience back into its state of coma. But eventually they began to settle down and everything was going nicely when a small boy with a face like a turbot edged out in front of the curtain, which had been lowered after a pretty painful scene about a wishing ring or a fairy's curse or something like that sort, and started to sing that song of George Dingamy's out of Cuddle Up. You know the one I mean. Always listen to mother girls, it's called. And he gets the audience to join in and sing the refrain. Quite a ripish ballad, and one which I myself have frequently sung in my bath with not a little vim, but by no means as any one but a perfect saphead prune like young Bingo would have known, by no means the sort of thing for a children's Christmas entertainment in the old village hall. Right from the start of the first refrain the bulk of the audience had begun to stiffen in their seats and fan themselves, and the burgess girl at the piano was accompanying in a stunned mechanical sort of way, while the curate at her side averted his gaze in a pained manner. The tough eggs, however, were all for it. At the end of the second refrain the kid stopped 
and began to sidle towards the wings, upon which the following brief duologue took place. Young Bingo, voice heard off, ringing against the rafters. Go on! The kid, coyly. I don't like to. Young Bingo, still louder. Go on, you little blighter, or I'll slay you. I suppose the kid thought it over swiftly and realised that Bingo, being in a position to get at him, had better be conciliated whatever the harvest might be, for he shuffled down to the front and, having shut his eyes and giggled hysterically, said, "'Ladies and gentlemen, I will now call upon Squire Tresider to oblige by singing the refrain.' You know, with the most charitable feelings towards him, there are moments when you can't help thinking that young Bingo ought to be in some sort of home. I suppose poor Fish had pictured this as the big punch of the evening. He'd imagined, I take it, that the squire would spring jovially to his feet, rip the song off his chest, and all would be gaiety and mirth. Well, what happened was simply that old Tresider, and mark you, I'm not blaming him, just sat where he was, swelling and turning a brighter purple every second. The lower middle classes remained, in frozen silence, waiting for the roof to fall. The only section of the audience that really seems to enjoy the idea was the Tough Eggs, who yelled with enthusiasm. It was jam for the Tough Eggs. And then the lights went out again. When they went up some minutes later, they disclosed the squire marching stiffly out at the head of his family, fed up to the eyebrows. The burgess girl at the piano with a pale, set look, and the curate gazing at her with something in his expression that seemed to suggest that, though all this was no doubt deplorable, he'd spotted the silver lining. The show went on once more. There were great chunks of plays for the tots dialogue, and then the girl and the piano struck the prelude to that orange girl number that's the big hit of the Palace Review. I took it that this was to be Bingo's smashing Act One finale. The entire company was on the stage, and a clutching hand had appeared round the edge of the curtain, ready to pull at the right moment. It looked like the finale, all right. It wasn't long before I realised it was something more. It was the finish. I take it you know that orange number at the palace. It goes, oh, Won't you something, something, oranges, my something, oranges my something oranges oh won't you something 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 i forget something 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 tumpty tumpty yet oh oh well, words to that effect it's a dashed clever lyric can the tune's good too the thing that made the number was the business where the girls take oranges out of the baskets you know and toss them lightly to the audience i don't know if you ever noticed it but it always seems to tickle an audience to bits when they get things thrown at them from the stage Every time I've been to the palace, the customers have simply gone wild over this number. But at the palace, of course, the oranges are made of yellow wool, and the girls don't so much chuck them as drop them limply into the first and second rows. I began to gather that the business was going to be treated rather differently tonight, when a dashed great chunk of pips and mildew sailed past my ear and burst on the wall behind me. Another landed with a squelch on the neck of one of the nibs in the third row, and then a third took me right on the tip of the nose, and I kind of lost interest in the proceedings for a while. When I'd scrubbed my face and got my eye to stop watering for a moment, I saw that the evening's entertainment had begun to resemble one of Belfast's livelier nights, and the air was thick with shrieks and fruit. The kids on the stage with Bingo buzzing distractedly to and fro in their midst were having the time of their lives, 
I suppose they realised that this couldn't go on forever and were making the most of their chances. The tough eggs had begun to pick up all the oranges that hadn't burst and were shooting them back so that the audience got it both coming and going. In fact, take it all round, there was a certain amount of confusion. And just as things had begun really to hot up, out went the lights again. It seemed to me about my time for leaving. So I slid for the door. I was hardly outside when the audience began to stream out. They surged about me in twos and threes, and I've never seen a public body so dashed unanimous on any point. To a man, and to a woman, they were cursing poor old Bingo, and there was a large and rapidly growing school of thought, which held that the best thing to do would be to waylay him as he emerged, and splash him about in the village pond a bit. There was such a dickens of a lot of these enthusiasts, and they looked so jolly determined that it seemed to me that the only matey thing to do was to go behind and warn young Bingo to turn his coat collar up and breeze off snakily by some side exit. I went behind and found him sitting on a box in the wings, perspiring pretty freely and looking more or less like the spot marked with a cross where the accident happened. His hair was standing up and his ears were hanging down, and one harsh word would undoubtedly have made him burst into tears. "'Bertie,' he said hollowly as he saw me, "'it was that blighter Steggles. I caught one of the kids before he could get away, and got it all out of him. Steggles substituted real oranges for the balls of wool, which with infinite sweat and at a cost of nearly a quid I had specially prepared. Well, I will now proceed to tear him limb from limb. It'll be something to do.' I hated to spoil his daydreams, but it had to be. "'Good heavens, man,' I said. "'You haven't time for frivolous amusements now. You've got to get out, and quick.' "'Bertie,' said Bingo in a dull voice, "'she was here just now. She said it was all my fault, and that she would never speak to me again. She said she'd always suspected me of being a heartless, practical joker, and now she knew. She said, "'Oh, well, she ticked me off properly.' "'That's the least of your troubles,' I said. It seemed impossible to rouse the poor Zib to a sense of his position. Do you realise that about two hundred of Twing's heftiest are waiting for you outside to chuck you into the pond? No. Absolutely. For a moment the poor chap seemed crushed, but only for a moment. There has always been something of the good old English bulldog breed about Bingo. A strange, sweet smile flickered for an instant over his face. It's all right, he said. I can sneak out through the cellar and climb over the wall at the back. They can't intimidate me. It couldn't have been more than a week later when Jeeves, after he had bought me my tea, gently steered me away from the sporting page of the Morning Post and directed my attention to an announcement in the Engagements and Marriages column. It was a brief statement that a marriage had been arranged and would shortly take place between the Honourable and Reverend Hubert Wingham third son of the Right Honourable the Earl of Sturridge, and Mary, only daughter of the late Matthew Burgess of Weatherley Court, Hants. Of course, I said, after I'd given it the east to west. I expected this, Jeeves. Yes, sir. She would never forgive him. What happened that night? No, sir. Well, I said, as I took a sip of the fragrant and steaming, I don't suppose it will take old Bingo long to get over it. It's about the hundred and eleventh time this sort of thing has happened to him. You're the man I'm sorry for. Me, sir? Well, dash it all, you can't have forgotten what a deuce of a lot of trouble you took to bring the thing off for Bingo. It's too bad that all your work should have been wasted. Not entirely wasted, sir. Eh? 
it is true that my efforts to bring about the match between mr little and the young lady were not successful but still i look back upon the matter with a certain satisfaction and because you did your best you mean not entirely sir no of course that thought also gives me pleasure i was alluding more particularly to the fact that i found the affair financially remunerative financially remunerative what do you mean when i learned that mr steggles had interested himself in the contest sir i went shares with my friend brookfield and bought the book which had been made on the issue by the landlord of the cow and horses it has proved a highly profitable investment your breakfast will be ready almost immediately sir kidneys on toast and mushrooms i will bring it when you ring end of chapter 20 recording by Gordon Mackay, Ertenhall, Holmrook, Cumbria.